Well, good morning. If um, you don't know me, my name's Jeremy. I'm the associate pastor here at Townview. And um, we're all here. We survived. Well, you survived Christmas. I'm going to say you and not us because, well, it's too soon to tell for me. Uh, I am sick as a dog. I've got one of those wonderful Christmas colds. It waits till just the right moment. It strikes. And on Associate Pastor Sunday of all days, I mean, that is a wicked cold. So you'll forgive me if I sound like Batman or Squidward at times and I, my energy level's way down. So just be, be patient with me, okay? Be nice. But you've done it. You survived Christmas. That's good. And uh, with the madness of Christmas behind us, many of us are already gearing up for the madness that New Year's Eve can bring. The, uh, the parties, the food, quick reminder, um, calories consumed between November 20th and January 15th do not count. So that's, that's still in effect. So go crazy. But the parties, the food, the, the late night TV specials, having to decide where you're going to celebrate, if you are going out to celebrate, the, uh, the expectations that some of us build up around some of these nights is probably the worst part of it. It's, it's like Christmas. People get so worked up trying to make everything special. And so with New Year's Eve, you got to pick the perfect outfit. You got to go to the right party. You got to take the right pictures with the right people. You got to have the right date. You have to know who you're going to kiss at midnight. For those of you like me who are married, this should be a very easy one to answer. So it's really important that you get it right. There's cameras everywhere, people. You got to make sure you got your evening planned out. And we act like things need to be perfect. It's a, I think it's a superstition. Like uh, the night is going to predict or maybe even influence the way that the next year is going to go. And we make, uh, we make promises, too. It's a big ritual in our culture. We make promises to ourselves and to the universe, and we uh, call them resolutions. We make promises to ourselves that we're going to be better in the coming year than we were in the present, which is reasonable. We need rituals like this to help us sustain life change. The turnover of a calendar year is a pretty good one. It's at least as good as any other. Some people take these resolutions very, very seriously. And for some of us, it's kind of just a joke. It's a game we play. Uh, either way, it really it, it scratches a, an itch in our psyche, especially here in the United States. You see, we, we have a huge self-improvement industry in North America. I know we all kind of know that anecdotally, but I, I did a very extensive Google search and got some numbers in 2017, Americans spent about $3 billion, with a B, on professional development, about $10 billion, with a B, on self-help, and about $60 billion, with a B, on weight loss. So about $73 billion a year is being spent on trying to improve ourselves. So hey, check this out. I think this is cool. Here's a list of the top-selling self-help books published in 2018. You can't hurt me. Master your mind and defy the odds. Dare to lead. That one's written by a Christian. It's sitting on my desk. Actually, I have a copy of that one. Atomic Habits. Tiny Changes. Remarkable Results. The Minimalist Home. The Laws of Human Nature. 
Unstuck Yourself. I changed the title of that one so I could say it in church. A sucky love story overcoming unhappily ever after in your marriage. This one's fun. You know, muster up all my strength. I might have to lay down. You are awesome every day. How to keep your motivation strong, your vibe high, and your quest for transformation unstoppable. It's one title. It's one sentence. It's incredible. I kind of want to read that one. What if there's no punctuation in the book? The productivity plan. This one's fun. Girl, stop apologizing. A shame-free plan for embracing and achieving your goals. Outer order, inner calm. Decluttering and organizing to make room for happiness. And the ever-controversial 12 Rules for Life. Book of simple rules like uh, stand up straight with your shoulders back, clean your room, and don't tell lies. And maybe we're at a point in our society where we um, need these things to be told to us again. But you hear these titles and you can hear a lot of our fears and hopes, our desires in them, can't you? The uh, market is a very good mirror. It will tell you exactly what you want and sell it to you. These book titles, to me, kind of feel like those ads that pop up on social media for something that you just decided you wanted, like seconds before. I don't know if you've had this experience. You think, man, it would be really great if I had X. And open your phone, and there's an ad for X, and you're like, well, I'm throwing this away and never turning on a computer again and definitely burning my Alexa. These titles kind of did that for me. We, they know what we want. We want to be more productive. We want to make more money. We want to have better relationships, better sex, better frame of mind. We want to be affirmed. We want to be brave and strong, and we want it to be easy. We all want to be better. We know our weaknesses and shortcomings better than anyone else in the world. We feel the difference between who we are and who we want to be. We feel it profoundly often, which makes reading passages like today's potentially a painful experience. But before we look at the passage, there's a few things I want you to be aware of. The uh, author of this book, maybe Paul, maybe one of his disciples, writes a letter to a young church in the prominent Asian city of Colossae. Colossae is on a major trade route that connected Asia Minor to the east and the rest of the Western Roman Empire. So it's wealthy. It's an important place to be. It's technologically advanced running water, indoor plumbing. First century, these are real things. This is a serious place to live. These people were educated and cultured, exposed to the best of what the east and the west had to offer. The church there had sprung up and grown quickly, but had fallen prey to some of the heresies prominent at this time. That means thinking wrong about stuff or believing wrong things. It appears that they were involved in things like angel worship, something called traditionalism, that's putting faith in acting out religious ritual rather than in Jesus, and a thing called Gnosticism, which for the sake of time will oversimplify to say it turned Christianity into sort of a scavenger hunt for secret knowledge and a Greek gnosis knowledge is where you get the name. It moves Jesus to the back burner. So into this diverse, wealthy, metropolitan city of confused Christians stumbling towards a life of discipleship and dealing with the complexity of trying to balance a life in their busy world with a life devoted to following Jesus come these words from Paul. I'm sure none of us can relate to any of those things. Just kidding, that's us. So here in this passage, we encounter a specific type of Greek literature. We'll be reading what's called a virtue list. These are often set in contrast with vice lists, but we're not going to read the vice list here. 
and they serve a pretty simple function. They are a clear way for the author of a work to point out what you're doing wrong, that's why we don't like it, and point towards a better way of living. So these are meant to be read as both convicting and compelling. You're doing something wrong, but here's a better way to live in the world. So with that in mind, let's take a look at Colossians 3, 12, 17. Very good. Anytime a passage starts with therefore, you've got to ask what it's there for. Uh, Paul had just set out an explanation of why race and socioeconomics are no longer a viable way to chop up the world. And so that's what the therefore is. Because of that, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, that's you, church, in this story, in this narrative, that's your identity. God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. Clothe yourselves, put on, surround yourself, present yourselves in. Compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. That perfectly describes almost all of us. Um, bear with each other. That's in the church. I don't know if you've ever been to a church, but they can be really hard to bear with. Um, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. So live in gracious community as a church. If you're curious as to whether you're required to forgive someone, here's the formula. If God would forgive you for it, you have to forgive them for it too. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Okay, Paul. Well, how are we supposed to do this? Answer, verse 15. Let the presence of Christ, the peace of Christ, rule in your hearts. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body... You were called to peace and be thankful. How do you clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forgiveness, and love? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts and be thankful. Back to verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another. There's that community piece again. Yikes. With all wisdom through psalms, hymns, Songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. I know, right? That's a good spot for an amen. This all sounds pretty good. I want to be that kind of person, living from a stance of gratitude and thankfulness, a meaningful part of a vibrant community, a person whose life is characterized by grace and forgiveness, known for compassion and kindness, love, humility, gentleness, and patience. I want that. I think most of us in in this room want that. And maybe some of us in this room at this moment are thinking something like, yeah, I do want that. You might say to yourself, self, it's time to get serious about our faith. You might say to yourself, self, I'm going to work extra hard this year. I'm going to take control of my life. I'm going to use 2019 to become a better person. I know what I'll do. I'm going to make Colossians 3.12 my New Year's resolution. That sounds religious. That's got to be good. I'm going to be more compassionate, kind, humble, gentle, and patient this year. Yeah, that's what I'll do. I'm going to volunteer at church. I'm going to invest in my faith. I'm going to hunker down and get it done. You might be tempted 
to think these things, but that's exactly what that would be. It would be a temptation towards a works-based self-righteousness. And you could. You could do it. You could read the books. You could do the work. You could add some practices and will yourself into compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. But that would be your will. That wouldn't be Jesus. You see, the truth is, no one accidentally follows Jesus. You can be a good person. You can do the right stuff. You can imitate Jesus. But at that point, he's your teacher, your exemplar, your ideal. But he's not your king. He's certainly not your God. He's someone you like. Someone you think is cool. Someone you want to be like. You like him. You might even love him. But he's not your God. You see, after the feel-good story of Christmas, after the angels, after the baby in a manger, after the dedication, after the wise men, Jesus is going to have to go away for a while. Jesus and his family become refugees and flee their home country seeking asylum, looking for a safer place to raise their family. You see, the world isn't a safe place for Jesus. They have to go hide because, as John 1 says, God came to his own people and they did not receive him. Darkness wanted to overcome him. There were immediately plans to snuff out this radiant spot of divine light and love, and Jesus has to go into hiding. In the Gospel of Matthew, the next character that we meet is a man named John. We're told that he's a prophet and he's calling people to get ready for something. From uh, Matthew 3, starts like this. In those days, John the Baptist came, preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling out in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Everybody likes baby Jesus. I think that's probably because baby Jesus doesn't talk much. Baby Jesus doesn't expect that much from you. But grown Jesus, he's dangerous because he's got something to say. And some of that can be hard to hear. So much so that there will be conspiracies against him for the whole of his ministry right from the start. This Jesus has expectations. This Jesus makes demands. This Jesus doesn't just want your adoration. This Jesus wants your obedience. And perhaps that's why John the Baptist has to come first in the story. Before you can receive Jesus as your king and your God, you need to make some changes. John's message to us as we prepare to encounter this Jesus is simple. Repent and make room for God. If you're hoping that 2019 will be the year that you get serious about following Jesus, stop it. Don't hope. Decide. Don't hope. Decide. These instructions from John are clear and strong verbs. Repent. Make way. Repent literally means to change one's mind or direction, to turn around. It's like John says, hey, you, you know that thing you're doing, the way you're living? Yeah, knock it off. Put it down, turn around, and walk away. And this uh, make straight the way of the Lord language is uh, the language of welcoming a king or the emperor to your town. You make the way easy. You clean up the roads. You make a place for him to stay. You make room 
for the king. Now, don't, don't miss this, church. If you've zoned out, zone back in. Check, check. Listen. If you hear the words of Colossians 3, 12 through 17 and think, I want to be this kind of person, living from a stance of gratitude and thankfulness, a meaningful part of a vibrant community, a person whose life is characterized by grace and forgiveness, known for compassion, kindness, justice, humility, gentleness, patience, and love, then your next step is clear. And it's not to try harder. It's not to make Colossians 3 your New Year's resolution. Instead, be resolute. That word means purposeful or unwavering. Let John's words get into you. Repent. Turn around. Make room for Jesus. We are masters, masters of filling our lives with stuff. Decide today to clean house, to make room, to get rid of the sin in your life. Now, that that can mean a lot of things to a lot of people. What I'm using that word sin to mean is anything in your life that keeps you from God. And I don't need to tell you what that is. The Holy Spirit is perfectly capable of convicting all of us of our sin. And you probably, you hear that word and something already triggers in your mind this thing that you need to lay down. It could be some clear obvious. And it could just be clutter. You may have accidentally crowded God out of your life. I've done that. We're so busy. So be resolute, be purposeful and unwavering in your repentance and surrender. We need the words of passages like Colossians 3, and we hear those, and we just want to go do it. Give us something to do. We'll do it. We want to make ourselves better. But when we understand the whole of the story that the Bible is telling us, we realize that we can't do any of that, not in a meaningful way, But Jesus can. The Christian life is about making room for Jesus to change you. You can't do the work. You can't be good enough. You can't earn the kingdom. You can't earn God's love. You just can't. But that's good news. That is good news because you were never supposed to earn it. You're simply supposed to receive it. This year... Make 2019 a year of releasing, make it a year of repenting, and a year of receiving. Let's pray.